One of the most interesting, one of the most fascinating, one of the most sometimes infuriatingly difficult to nail down topics in the Bible is the providence of God. When I say infuriatingly difficult to nail down, what I mean is that when we start talking about God and how He works in the world and how He's at work in our lives and how He answers prayer, the Bible teaches that all those things are true and yet at the same time, we don't have a thus saith the Lord for one specific incident in our lives or one specific circumstance that's come about. And so the best we can do is say, well, perhaps this was the result of providence. This looks like the kind of thing that might have been the work of God's providence. But in some ways it's a non-provable proposition, the providence of God. I believe with all my heart that God works in our lives. I believe with all my heart that God is at work in this world, that God answers prayers, that God responds in love to His people, that God is working His will and trying to accomplish His will in this world. As messed up as the world is and as messed up as our lives are, God still has a will that He is working to accomplish. And I'd like to bring to your attention this evening three passages as we introduce this particular study of God's providence, three passages to keep in mind. The first one is the one that was just read a moment ago, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Open your Bibles there if you would. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Three passages on providence that are worthy of our reflection, worthy of our contemplation. Joseph, his father has just died. And his brothers are worried because they're afraid that Joseph is now going to take vengeance on them because they mistreated Joseph all those years ago. And maybe he's just been staying his hand, not punishing his brothers because dad was still alive. And so they come to Joseph with an emissary and they say, Joseph, what are your intentions? And Joseph makes a statement in Genesis 50 verse 20 about providence. And here's what he says. In Genesis 50 verse 20, now brethren, do not be afraid, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph had been sold into slavery. He had later become a prisoner because he stood for what was right and did the right thing. And Joseph was able to look back on all of that misery and all those years of suffering, and he was able to see something of God's providence in all of that. Because now at the end of the journey, not while the journey was happening, but at the end of the journey, Joseph could look back and he could see, aha, God has been doing all of this so that he could save my family. Because my family was made a promise many, many years ago. God had promised Abraham that he was going to bless all nations through Abraham's descendants. And so Joseph could look at what God had promised and he could do the math and he said, this is the hand of God at work in my life. But it took years for Joseph to be able to see that. And when we start looking for providence in our lives, one rule of thumb to keep in mind is don't look at what's going on right now necessarily. Don't look at what was happening last week or even last year. Look 5, 10, 15 years ago in your life and you start to see maybe some of the things that God has been trying to do in our lives. Here's another passage to think about. Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. 
Esther is a curious book. Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. In the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. The reason why God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther is because it's a book about providence. It's a book about how God works behind the scenes to bless his people, to save his people, to work in ways in our lives that bring about his will and purposes. And in Esther chapter 4, Esther, this young lady who was orphaned, she is elevated to become the very queen of Persia. And her people, the Jews, are about to be exterminated. There's a plot to kill them. And Esther, Mordecai, her relative, speaks to her in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And here's what Mordecai says. Again, a providential passage. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai says, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You see, Mordecai has been reading his Bible and he knows that God has made certain promises to the Israelites. He knows that God's going to be faithful to his promises. He knows that God is going to deliver his people one way or another. He knows that because he knows who God is and he knows how powerful God is. But then he says this in Esther chapter 4 verse 14. He says, if you don't say anything, you and your father's house will perish. And then he brings up this question, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. When we say providence is a non-provable proposition, what we're saying is that even people who saw the opportunities before them said, who knows? This might be the actual purpose of God. Esther, all the suffering and things that you've gone through in your life and all the opportunities that you've been given by the king, all of that might be God's providence so that you can deliver your people right here and right now. It's well worth thinking about that God works in our lives, but even people who understood that principle in Scripture didn't always see exactly how God might be bringing about his plans. Passage number three, open your Bibles to Romans chapter eight and look at verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter eight, verses 28 through 30. When we think about the providence of God, about how God works in our lives to bring about his will, how he works in the world to bring about his purposes, Romans chapter eight and verse 28 is a passage that deals with what we call special providence. That is to say, generally, God is at work in the world. Jesus said it this way, Jesus said, God is the one who makes the rain to fall and he makes the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. In Acts chapter 14, when the apostles preached, they said that God fills our hearts with food and gladness. There's a sense in which God provides for all of humanity. But Romans 8, 28 has to do with the people of God. That's what we call special providence, that God works in a very special way in the lives of those who are New Testament Christians. And here's what it says in Romans 8, verse 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So does this promise apply to everybody everywhere? No, it applies to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It's talking about Christians. There's a way in which God is working in special ways in the lives of Christians. And we know this is true. And here's what he's trying to do. Look at Romans 8 verse 29. 
It's not just about making my life comfortable. It's not just about blessing me with all kinds of material blessings. It's not those things even particularly. What's God doing in the lives of those who love him? Look at verse 29, it tells us, for whom he foreknew, Christians, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8:29 tells us that what God's doing in the lives of Christians is he's bringing about opportunities and circumstances so that we can become conformed to the image of his son. That's what Romans 8:29 says, so that we can become more like Jesus. And sometimes if I lose my job, that might help make me more like Jesus. Sometimes if a calamity befalls me, that might be an opportunity to help me to become more like Jesus. And so when we look at providence and we think about God working in our lives, sometimes the opportunities that are made available to us are difficult ones. Read Hebrews 12 sometime and talk about and think about the discipline and the chastening of the Lord that's being described there. God wants us to be like Jesus and whatever makes me more like Jesus is good for me. All things work together for good to help us to become more like Christ. And so you've got three passages. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. A view of providence that looks way back in the past and starts to see how the puzzle fits together. You've got Esther. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. A possibility, an opportunity, and a clear promise from God that this is what he wants to happen. He wants somebody to save his people. Esther, you've got the scepter. You can go see the king. And then you've got Romans 8, 28 and 29, where Paul writes that God is constantly interested in helping his people, all of his people, to become more like the image of his son. Passages to think about concerning providence. God's at work in the world and he wants to make you and he wants to make me more like Jesus. So I wanna ask tonight three questions when we think about the providence of God generally, three questions that are gonna help us to maybe appreciate and understand just a little bit better what this particular subject is all about. Question number one is this, when we talk about the providence of God, we're talking about God's activity in the world. And what we're saying is that God has a purpose. He doesn't do anything without a purpose. He doesn't just arbitrarily do things that have no function, no essence, no, no reason for them. And so when we talk about God's working in the world, we're saying that God has a purpose in the world and he's actually told us in his word what that purpose entails. God's purpose in the world, I'm going to bring two thoughts to your mind. Number one, when we think about God's purpose in the world, we ought to think about the promises of God. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God spoke to Abram, remember? And he said, Abram, I want you to get out of your country and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And I'll bless you, Abram. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a mighty promise to Abram, and the promise is really about Jesus. It's about how God is going to bring a Savior into the world through the lineage, through the heritage of that man, Abram. And everything you read through the Old Testament 
all of it relates to God's historical purpose in the world, how God was going to bring forth a Savior, how God was going to bring Jesus into the world, and all of God's providential workings in some way, shape, or form tied into that main purpose, that God wants to bring a Savior into the world. And the people who blessed the Israelites and blessed the people who were descended from Abraham, they were blessed. And the people who cursed them, they were cursed. Why? Because God had made that promise. And then in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible tells us that when the fullness of the time had come, when God looked down upon the world and he saw that his purpose, the time for Jesus to come was, going, it was, was ripe, it was, it was ready, the Bible says God sent forth his son, Galatians 4, verse 4, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. God sent a son, a savior into the world. That was his purpose. And do you know what? That's still God's purpose even today. Everything ties into Jesus and to his church. Everything. What God is doing in the world, all of it has to do with exalting Jesus Christ, helping more people to know him. All of it has to do with the church, the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All of it ties into Christ and to his church. When we ask the question, what's God's purpose in the world? God's purpose is for people to know Jesus, to find salvation in him, to become part of his body. That's what God is doing in the world even today. It's what he's always been doing. Secondly, when we think about what's God's purpose in the world, think about the design. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and listen to why God has done all this. To what end has God decided to send Jesus into the world and to save people from their sins and to bring them into one body through the cross? Why has God done all that? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The Bible says that all this was done according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. The Bible says all this was done to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You've got this expression, the praise of his glory, the good counsel of his will, the idea that God is going to be glorified when people turn to Jesus and find their salvation in him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let me sum all this up. I'll just put a design there on the screen. What's God doing in the world? Historically, he made it possible for Jesus Christ to come into this world so that people who were sinners could be saved. And the reason why Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners is so that God could be glorified. It displays how great and how mighty and how majestic God is when you and I humble ourselves and we obey his commands and we live our lives for him. It shows the greatness of God in our lives. And it also shows the greatness of Jesus Christ when we become more and more and more like him. And so when we ask the question, well, what's God's purpose in the world? His purpose is to make men like Jesus, to help people to become more like his son. Why? Because it glorifies him and it saves us from our sins. And when we start looking for the providence of God in lives, 
We don't just look for, oh, there's a new job opportunity and maybe that's God's providence. Or maybe the, the, the thing that I've been really wanting and the, the item that I've wanted to possess, maybe that's God's providence that now I have the opportunity to possess it. It's bigger than all that. This is about the salvation of souls through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That is what God is really all about. And that's what you and I ought to think more about because the gospel really is for all. And it really does make a difference what we're trying to accomplish in our lives. What's God's purpose in the world? That's gonna help you to see God's providence more clearly. Second question this evening then. What choices can put a person in the path of providence? And what I mean by that is, God has been working in the world since the world began. God has been working behind the scenes in ways that people can't see and don't always realize. And sometimes people are unwittingly used by God without even knowing it. Men like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. God used Nebuchadnezzar and God, God showed His glory even though Nebuchadnezzar was an unwilling participant in all that. But there are, there are ways in which you and I can volunteer and say, I love God. I love what God is doing in the world. I love Jesus Christ. I love the fact that He wanted to save sinners, and I want to be a part of that. And I want to be in the path of the providence of God, and I want to, I want to cooperate with what God's trying to do in the world. What kinds of choices can I make in order to be more in the path of God's providence? It's a question worth thinking about. Here are some suggestions. There are four of them. Number one, you want to be where God is and you want to think about what God thinks about? Obey the gospel. That ought to be obvious, but sometimes it may not be. There are a lot of spiritually minded people in the world who have not obeyed the gospel. There are a lot of people who are favorable toward Jesus and they think that Jesus is a good person and they might even claim that Jesus is their Lord, but they've not obeyed the gospel. They've not done what God says people need to do to respond in faith and obedience to the gospel commands. God has called us by His gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14, God has sent His Son that we might not perish but have everlasting life, John 3:16. You want to be in the path of God's providence obey the gospel. Do what He asks. Submit to Him and live your life for Him. You know what Romans 6 teaches? Romans 6 teaches that when we become Christians, we also become slaves of God, servants of His. And Romans 6 verses 11 and 12 tells us that we're, to, we're supposed to wake up every morning and we're supposed to present ourselves to God as His servants to obey. That's what it says. We're supposed to work in His kingdom, in His vineyard. And that starts at the point when we obey the gospel. Secondly, what choices put us in the path of providence? Love people. And I put an extra expression there. Love people in a way that honors God. There's a lot of hijacking of Bible terms that's happening these days. Society is hijacking words like love and like justice and things like that. Society is hijacking words that are Bible words, and it's reframing and redefining those words to mean very different things than what the Bible means. And so, when we talk about loving people, we're talking about loving people in biblical ways, in holy ways, loving people in ways that, that shows and demonstrates that we understand this is what love is because our God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. 
That love is patient and kind and doesn't behave itself rudely. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in truth. You want to be in the path of God's providence. Love people in God-honoring ways. And by the way, that also means that we love our enemies. Matthew 5 verses 44 and 45. We make the choice out of our own free will that we're going to love and do what's best for people who we might be upset with that we might be angry at, that are our enemies. It's providential when we start making those kinds of choices. Number three, be in the path of God's providence. Humble yourself. Hard to do. Extraordinarily hard to do. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 5 through 8. In a book that deals with suffering... Because we're Christians, we suffer sometimes. And Peter's writing about this in the book of 1 Peter. And I want you to notice what he does. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he gives some commandments to elders. He tells them that when they serve, they're not supposed to be haughty, and they're not supposed to be authoritarian. They're supposed to be gentle, and they're supposed to be convicted by God's Word. They're not supposed to do this out of a love of money, things like that. And we kind of stop at verse 4, and we don't notice that when it goes on to verse 5, it also tells everybody else who's not an elder how they're to behave. So look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, that is those of you who are not elders, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a providence type of passage. And what it's saying is that when I humble myself, I put myself in the path of God's providence. Because when I'm proud and full of myself and stuck up and I think I'm too good for this, when that's who I am, God resists people like that. But people that God gives grace to are people who are humble. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the Pharisee stood and prayed and said, God, I'm thankful I'm not like other men. And the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said one of those men was justified, blessed by God. It wasn't the Pharisee, though. Humble yourself, and God will bless you. Number four, what choices put a person in the path of providence? Be generous. God loves a cheerful giver, 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20 and verse 35. More blessed to give than to receive. If that's true, then we ought to be channels of God's blessings into the lives of others. We ought to be generous. We ought to be generous with our time. We ought to be generous with our finances. We ought to be generous with our energy. We ought to be generous and thoughtful about others because this is the way that God uses us to bless those around us. These kinds of choices, when we stop and think about it, we don't always know how God might be working in a given opportunity, in a given situation, but we know that He is. And we also know that He might well use us and our hands and our lives might well be used by God to touch somebody else and make an eternal difference. Number three tonight, questions. For what should I be praying? If we believe God answers prayers, 
If we believe that God is working in the world to help people to know Jesus Christ so that they can be saved and He can be glorified, if that's really what this is all about, this life is all about those things, then what kinds of things should I be praying for? Let me give you six suggestions. Number one, we are commanded to pray for wisdom. And boy, do we need it. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And listen to what James writes to his brethren. We are commanded to pray for wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and apply it properly in a given situation. And apply it in a way that's best. So wisdom means that there might be a lot of good choices in my life, but we're looking for what's best. What is best for the kingdom of God? What is best for people who need to know Christ? Those kinds of questions. James chapter 1 verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. There's a promise. Ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. Then it says in verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubt, for one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The Bible commands us to ask God for wisdom. There are so many questions that linger and so many difficult choices that have to be made in our lives and so many things that you kind of look at, these are two good options, how do I know what's best? Pray about it. Because in His providence, God promises that He's going to bless us with the wisdom we need to make good choices, wise choices. Second question, or second uh, subject of prayer. For what should I be praying? The Bible commands us to pray for world leaders as well as local leaders. Casting a vote for someone that may have some kind of influence on whether or not a person is elected to office, but the very absolute best thing you could ever do for anybody who is a leader or an authority is to pray for them. Without question, it will accomplish more, it will do more good than voting for anybody ever did, or campaigning for anybody, or repeating somebody's uh, campaign slogan out on social media, anything like that. Praying for those people will do more good than anything else. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 5 commands us as the church to constantly be praying for those who are rulers and in authority, constantly, because God answers those kinds of prayers to His glory so that people can know Jesus, so that people can come to understand what it means to be saved. Next, for what should I be praying? We ought to pray for the church. Do you? And your daily prayers, as you think about all the many things that go on in your life, do you remember to pray for the church? And I'm not just talking about the Katy congregation. I'm talking about the church worldwide. I'm talking about individual congregations that you've been associated with in the past. And you're praying for them because you want them to be close to Jesus and you want them to be faithful to the word and to teach the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Do you pray? Do you pray for the church? I find it fascinating that in every one of his letters, Paul mentions that he was praying for the brethren that he's writing to. Before he ever wrote them a word, before he ever preached a sermon, he was praying for them. Philippians 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Paul prayed for his brethren because he believed in a God who works in our lives in providential ways to bless for what should I be praying? Number four, 
We ought to pray for elders. We ought to pray for deacons. We ought to pray for preachers. We ought to pray for teachers of God's Word, both in a collective setting and in one-on-one settings. We've got some evangelists among us. We've got some people who are very zealous in one-on-one types of situations for carrying the gospel message. Do you pray for people like that? Do you pray for the elders? Do you pray for deacons? You know, deacons are like the offensive linemen of the church. I've been watching a lot of football the last week or so. Offensive linemen, those are the guys up front, the big burly guys, you know. And when the ball is snapped, everybody watches what the quarterback does. He watches what the wide receiver and the running back do because they're the ones with the ball. They're flashy. The offensive linemen are just right there in the middle, and they don't get much glory. In fact, the only time anybody ever recognizes an offensive lineman is when he makes a mistake. Oh, he let the guy by and he sacked the quarterback. No, offensive linemen are vital to a football team. Deacons are vital to the church. And the only time sometimes anybody ever notices a deacon is when he falls down on the job and something didn't get done. And oh, we got to talk. Do you pray for deacons? God says this is how he's organized his church. And if that's true, and if the church's function and purpose is to make Christ known so that people can understand more of God's will, so that God can be glorified and we can be made like Jesus, if that's all true, I ought to be praying for these people. And so should you. For what should I be praying? We ought to pray for the sick. James 5, 14 through 18. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them come, anointing him with oil, and let them pray for him. The Bible commands us to pray for people who are sick. There are some sicknesses and some diseases and some problems that people have physically and maladies. And we pray, we're to pray for those people. God commands us to do so because even over and above what medicine can accomplish, God and his providence can do some things. If it's his will and if he so chooses, we ought to pray. For what should I be praying? I ought to pray about the gospel. We talked about this this morning, but we didn't look at the passage. Let's look at it together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. The apostle Paul writing to some brethren who were pretty new Christians. They hadn't been Christians all that long. And when he wrote this letter, here's what he said to them. Finally, brethren, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. What does Paul ask for when he asks for prayers? He says, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly that there will be opportunities for people to know who Jesus is, that they'll understand God's word better, that they'll know the gospel, because that's how God has chosen to save people. When we think about the providence of God, about the fact that God works behind the scenes in ways that we don't always see or discern or appreciate, there's much to contemplate, there's much to be grateful for, And there's much to be encouraged by because God has not left us alone in this world to try to fend for ourselves and try to navigate life without his help. He stands ready to bless our lives, to encourage us, and most importantly, to make us more like Jesus. And if that's our goal and if that's our aim, we're firmly and squarely in the path of the providence of God 
even when life is not the way that we might have chosen for it to be. The lesson is yours. If you're not a New Testament Christian, obey the gospel tonight. Repent and be baptized. If you are a Christian, you need prayers because prayer does work and God does answer prayers. We'd love to pray for you and with you. If you have a need to respond publicly, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.